0: there would always be the comments um you know the asians making churros like i don't i wouldn't even try that because it's it's asian-owned business um and like i said all that is okay but then it goes into that that fine line of being racist and that's where it's kind of like i get like
1: welcome to the ketchup (laughs) introducing your hosts Eli abrith editor in chief and... Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, newsbreaking, food porn peddling, viral website on the dot coms. Food Feast. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy. There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. Alright,
2: and welcome to The catchup. Welcome back to The up. My name is Eli. What's up, Jeff? What's up, Eli? I like that voice, my friend. This week, I have a very, very special guest.
1: Our guests keep getting better.
2: I'm so excited about The catchup. guys. Every
1: week, man, it's just like one step ahead of the other it's amazing
2: we got someone who looks like a youtuber but since you can't see him he is my dear friend mr daily food feed on instagram himself jed carajano is a part of a rare breed of Instagrammers who took a large following and leveraged it into some serious serious business as of today jed is the co-owner of the loop churros a dessert restaurant Very delicious with three locations and a fourth on the way here in Southern California. And why this is a good week that Jed is jumping on is a little bit of controversy struck Jed recently. He was accused on IG, of all places, of cultural appropriation for being a quote-unquote Asian running a churro joint. Damn. Yeah, wild. So Jed, we know you as a pretty easygoing person. You brush everything off. When we hang dinner, like I, I would never see you as someone who's like riled up. But this comment from a random Instagrammer definitely struck a nerve. Reading it again myself, I was like, man, ugh, I felt some type of way. Um, And it caused you not just to react, but you wanted to educate not only your daily food feed followers, which number over 600,000, but The Loop has over 200,000 followers of them. Like it's massive. Big dessert shops across the nation. With hundreds of stores, don't have that kind of following. So you took that opportunity to kind of talk. So I wanted to welcome you to the podcast, bro. Well, thank you. What a what an intro. Can <laughs> we do it right?
1: Yeah, that was. I'm I'm gonna go on record that that was the longest intro of the ketchup history, yeah. but in a, in, 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 a, a good good way. Way. in a good way. Yeah, it was There's layered. Yeah, there was there was multiple elements. You know, wasn't putting Jed in a box, which is like our our worst fear is to do an intro where someone's like.
0: That's not me.
1: So I like I like layered intros. I cool. think I'm gonna be a fan of them in the future.
2: And we're gonna learn more about you because Jed, if, if a lot of our uh, listeners at home they they either have an Instagram account of their own or follow some of the people like you, um. So it's gonna be fun to kind of deep dive into a little bit of your history before we get into. We're gonna lead up to that comment that yeah. we can talk about and talk about a little cultural appropriation and food, um, and how we all feel about it. But um. No, it's great. It's like it's a trip to be here because I remember,
0: you know, when I started Instagram, and I literally I just DM um, Food Beast with all my food pictures all the time, <laughs> and just like, yo, repost me, yo, look at this, look at this
2: ice cream, yo, look at this pizza I got. But it used to be trash, bro. So <laughs> why did you one? Why did you even start an Instagram account, or why was it a food Instagram account? Um, there was
0: a lot of reasons why I started. It. One of the reasons was because I was on this crazy health kick. And I was just like working out a lot. I was dieting like crazy. And for some reason at that time, I loved following the few food Instagrams that were out there at that time. Mm-hmm. I love just looking at good looking food. I felt like I was having it. I felt like all that stuff, right? Um, secondly, I, I had a marketing agency I had for restaurants. I was trying to figure out, you know, if Instagram was a good thing, good way to, for people to use it for marketing. Um, and then I just started this account called Daily Food Feed. It started off as a repost account because I was trying to just figure out what people like to see and sure. how they like to see it. Yeah. And, and all this other stuff, at least food. And started it anonymously. Didn't tell any of my friends, didn't tell like anyone that I had started this food account just to see how how it works and how and it grow. had an
2: anonymous name, daily food feed. Yeah. It's not, it wasn't right now it's Jed's <coughs> daily food feed. So yeah. people you've kind of tied your face to it. We'll get yeah. to that. Um, so what were the first couple posts like on there? You said you were just resharing other people's yeah, stuff?
0: Yeah. Um, I remembered my first couple of posts. I did six posts just to make it look full. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, good tactic, good tactic. <laughs> and I used um, a very kind of, I, I re-edited a lot of the photos I saw because just because I I, I noticed that people like seeing things a certain way and it was just figuring it out. You know, what? how do people want, like to see food? Um, yeah, f- six photos, um, different sweets, different savories. See how people like it. I remember one of the f- one of the six was After's ice cream. Actually, mm. a Milky bun. Oddly enough, yeah. I had no ties to After's ice cream. Did not know, you know, anyone from there. It was just funny that one of those photos was After's ice cream.
1: And talk about the content generation for the first year or after you started the account. What that first stage was because. Was it just walking into places that you thought would be interesting, and then testing out different forms of content, and then looking at it, seeing how it engaged, trying to replicate it with different content? Like, and has that been happening over now? I don't know. Is that how six? old is Daily Food? How old? Daily I, Food feed
0: is now coming up on four years old. Wow, congrats. four years old.
1: Yeah, tell me about that first year and what content generation was like, and what you learned, and how that adapted. Uh, Because I'm then curious when you started to understand where there was a business opportunity. But Mm -hmm. tell me what you were seeing in that first year. That first year
0: was the funnest year I've had in a, a long time. That first year was literally, you know what? The main thing is I started Daily Food Feed because I love food. That's like, at the end of the day, that's what it is. I love food. I love checking out new places. I love finding, you know, all the cool new spots at that time there was a lot of food that was coming out that was just really interesting and just like i, I mean i wanted to see it i wanted to and and just looking at it through the reposting part of it is just seeing the other foods around the world is a really interesting too but we don't get to see because we're here locally in um, southern california so there was a lot of good food coming out that first year that i was doing it um like i said i had my own marketing agency at the time it was kind of at the stale you know Place and it was just flat and it was just, just wasn't going anywhere I didn't feel like so I just decided I'm gonna get rid of all of my clients except for one which I still have bagels
2: and brew you know bagels well. and brew I was like, oh, <laughs> Jeff, that's kind of those my first early interactions with you is, yeah. so Jed had a marketing agency but it wasn't Instagram focused. it no. was it like kind of PR agency? yeah just a PR yeah marketing uh-huh. agency and bagels and brew was this place that was next to my girlfriend's house and mm-hmm. I was like why does this bagel shop have like kind of a crack in Instagram? Like, Why am I seeing it all the time? And I, I don't know how it happened. Maybe I reached out or vice versa and we met that way too. Yeah. But go ahead. Exactly. So,
0: <laughs> and so yeah, like you said, that first year I just said, you know what, I'm going to focus strictly on what I'm doing on Instagram, not knowing where it's going to go, not knowing like what I'm doing. All I knew was that I was having fun. I was meeting people with, you know, like interests, um, just a g- great group of people. Um, I was getting to check out like new food spots um, on my own. Like, you know, a lot of Instagrammers right now, they think that, oh, I have 10,000 followers and now I can get free food <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. Like, no, I was out there, I was hustling, I was like trying to find the best new things that are out there, paying for it myself, you know, and, and just taking great photos and, and trying to just, you know, get people as engaged as possible with me that first year. That was a really fun
2: time, too. A fun time. Because uh, I met a lot of fun people because of you yeah. as well. Like, So as your account started to grow, it seemed like you had found this visual voice. Uh, so the first couple photos you, you mentioned sharing, you shared them from other people. You didn't take those photos. At what point were you taking the photos yourself? And what were those first photos like that you actually took? And then how did it become into this very, if anyone follows Daily Food Feed and a lot of the other accounts that in essence we're inspired by your visual uh aesthetic if, if you haven't if you don't follow it high color contrast gruesome
1: photos and visuals of food um and what i remember the most about seeing the first images was just how in your face it was yeah it was like I've described to other people about Judd's feed in the beginning where it was just like lick your phone type food Mm -hmm. where you're just like, you're looking at it and you're just hoping that what you're seeing could just reach out and you could grab it. Right. And so that was the first time I think I had kind of an emotive reaction to like food photos. In my opinion was when you can't ignore this, it's not only in like in your feed and at that time was probably like more time-based and algorithm-based. But when I saw that it was like, you're stopping you're curious you're reading a caption. And I think that's been, I think that's been emulated now by an entire category of influencers, yeah. right. Who are trying to do content in a similar style in a similar way. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean,
0: <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> you know, well, it, it it was, it was a style that I was trying, I, I always tell people, you know what, I'm not a good photographer. I'm not a good food photographer by any means. I just know what people like to see. Like, I know that, you know, I maybe I was maybe the first person that was taking pictures of a burger that had a bite into it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, people like seeing stuff that was real, that was just like, looks like you just picked it up and this is exactly what it looks like, but obviously like a little bit more of an exaggerated version from what I did. So that was kind of where I found that style that really worked for me and that worked for the audience that I had. And, um, it just kept on growing and growing and growing when I was taking my photos, my own photos, it was growing more than when I was reposting him. Um, come that year, the end of that year, the exact date of the year, I had 200,000 followers in a a year. That's crazy. Which was absolutely insane. I would have never imagined that.
2: And at the same time, I still didn't know what I was doing with it necessarily. (laughs) So were you making a lot of money from Daily Food Feed itself at the time? Or were you making no money? And was it all tied to some of the at what point did you pick up another restaurant or something like daily? You had the bagels and brew spot, which you would promote uh-huh. on your account as well. What point do you like? Here's how I make money from my account.
0: You know what? Like I said, I was going through this um, with my old marketing agency that I had started where it was just nothing was changing. Everything that I was going to do, it was just not going to grow. Um, so I spent my time in this in Instagram and lo and behold, it uh, allowed me to meet a lot of great people and my business partners now you know um a couple first couple months of having daily food feed after his ice cream and tustin opened scott you know slid into my dm and he just said hey why don't you come over um we have a grand opening also no i I didn't (laughs) know him from whatever i remembered our first dms was um that he told me he was just that he said Make sure you come and say hi, because I have no idea what you look like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And so, um, yeah, and, and that's how I met. I met Scott and Andy um, of After's Ice Cream at the time. Um, really clicked, found some people. Sometimes you meet people that you're just like, wow, you, I. how am I exactly like you? And we've never met before. Mm-hmm. Same age. We went to, you know, graduated high school, same time, all this other stuff. Um, ended up meeting them. And then... Um, all all of us very business-minded too on top of that um they were lo and behold they were they were looking for someone to partner with to do a marketing agency themselves and then that's how kind of it started as something else and started as something that was a little bit more focused on Instagram at that time they had tried or diet mm-hmm. together
2: um another so Instagram account where they would reshare yep photos of things you guys took some of their your own photos as Absolutely. well, but you guys were just basically putting up photos on Instagram and asking people, would you try it or does it suck so bad? You would just die. Yeah. <laughs> was that
0: well, definitely. Cool. So, um, so yeah, I think it was after that and after meeting those guys and figuring out kind of a business model that, um, that honestly was just like my marketing um, agency before, but just an, an, an elevated way because now we have, you know, um someone like scott and andy who have a very successful ice cream store where everyone wants to know how they marketed their thing so organically behind it it just helped out a lot um and then it just kind of went from
2: there so you learned a lot you grew your account Mm -hmm. and then at what point and how do you start the loop
1: yeah and that's and let's back up a little bit because you had a uh Intimate view of restaurant tours because you were doing the marketing of restaurant tours, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As the three of us all know on this podcast, she opening a restaurant is hard. Yes, like there's so many variables, there's so much liability, there's so much finance instability with the amount that you have to bring in through your door on a day, week, or a month perspective to just make up for the costs that are already in place with your employees and your rent and your food costs. And your all, all. so my question to you, Jed is seeing all of that, Mm -hmm. what made you excited enough to even start thinking about opening a concept that you had ownership in? Like what was that domino effect? What was that tipping point to where you were interested in? And then where did the loop and churros fall in line to be like, this is the concept that I'm starting. Um,
0: like I said, I, I give a lot of credit to, um, Scott and Andy of After's Ice Cream. They were good friends of mine, um, before I started the loop. Um, I, I saw what they were able to do with, you know, a dessert concept and how they were able, able to use, you know, marketing that I would use and, and how I would do it. Um, and they definitely inspired me and just, just in, in maybe having my own concept in one way or another. Um, At the same time, I also definitely knew the hardships of it. And it's also having even considered starting the loop um, with the loop. I have um, my two partners now, their brother and sister. um, um, Lone her husband was one of my clients before. Mm. And that's how I got hooked up with them. Um, They had let me know that they were starting a dessert concept. Didn't tell me exactly what it was going to be. um, And... I remember one of the first things I told them was that I don't think I would do it unless they're churros. And you said that I said that specifically. And the reason why is because that's the only concept I had think thought about in my head that I would want to even do. Also because I had daily food feed and I'd post random pictures of churros I found in you know, downtown l a, and it would just get them the most likes and the most engagement. It's just people love churros. It's just insane. So so to me, it was kind of a, a, a way for me to research.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then coming up on the opportunity of having the loop and, and knowing that there were churros, um, I was just so excited about it, but at the same time nervous because I'm literally everything that I know, I'm kind of putting it out there and like kind of putting my money where my mouth is, you know? because I tell everyone, I tell all my clients how to market and how to succeed and how to bring customers in. And then now I'm, I have to do it from my own concept and people are watching and people are watching because you know what, if I fail, then, then what's, how am I going to be, you know, a credible source in anything else that I, that I do with my, with, you know, in marketing or anything like that.
2: Or I never realized how much weight that holds. Cause I remember talking to you in the kind of week leading up to the loop opening and I, we went and had like FUD a spot, like yeah. in the same shopping center and the loop had an open and I'm just like talking Uh-oh. to you. You looked a little jittery and nervous about it opening, but I never realized the gravity. I mean like, so what is going through your mind that the idea that like, dude, if this fucking fails, if no one shows up and I have to close in a month, like I might lose the clients that I do have on my marketing side. Cause like, yo, this dude can't even market his own spot. Like how is he going to market mine? Absolutely. Um, that was that was a lot. And that's what
0: also gave me that drive to make sure I fucking succeed, you know? Like I needed that. Um, cause otherwise it's just like if I didn't have that, I I don't think we would be where we are in can one we, way or another. Can we talk about churros
1: for a second? Hell before yeah, we, we about like true. Before we go into the loop and I we have so many questions about the starting of the loop and where you're coming to now with your fourth location, but I'm giddy for churros, and I say say that because I'm giddy for churros in a way that I'm not giddy for rolled ice cream, Mm -hmm. and that I'm not giddy for different fad desserts. For me, I don't know if it was... My mom was a 20-year employee at Disney. What? We we had... Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Okay, Jeff. (laughs) She, she, She had a corporate... They called them silver passes back in the day. So I was a Disney kid growing up, which is part of the reason I'm not as Disney crazy now. Jeff never goes to Disney
2: with us. Really? (laughs) But I had this
1: like I had this pretty crazy Disney childhood, and the every every time we went to a park, the one thing that I always got, no matter what, it wasn't it wasn't the pineapple whip, it wasn't something else, it wasn't a pretzel. It was always the churro, and we would always. When we could, we would try to find the line that was, they weren't the churros just sitting there. Mm -hmm. They were the ones, like, they were, there was a line and they were coming, like, fresh out of the, even though it was reheated. They're frying them the back. Yeah, no one's, no one at Disneyland stand is frying their churros right there. (laughs) That's already, like, question one. But on top of that, you, but if they were at least reheating it there, it was, it was a good experience. Mm -hmm. And. For me for Jeff the person Disneyland had a monopoly on churros it was the only place as a kid as a teenager even as like an early 20s adult where I knew where to get it like that was the only place the hundred then hundred dollar entry fee whatever <laughs> is the and I would have to get a churro or two because I wouldn't have a pass and like so the churro means a lot. One, to me, nostalgic-wise, but also when I think of it outside of the nostalgia, I just like churros on a regular basis.
2: And I think it means a lot to a lot of people because that story of going to Disneyland for yep. the churro, like they did monopolize that branding because Disneyland is based in Anaheim. There are probably other places you could have got churros totally. all those damn years, but there are so many stories of people... With a Disneyland pass, driving all the way to Anaheim, parking, walking (laughs) all the way in, grabbing one churro and leaving. Like, you went through all that trouble to get a Disneyland churro. But that was an exciting, memorable thing of a lot of people probably listening that, like, we did that shit. We went to Disneyland for the churro. They somehow, it wasn't a cultural thing. No. I don't think Disneyland did a great job of saying where churro comes from at all. It was just, it came from a cart in a magical land in <laughs> fucking Frontierland. Like, that's that's where churros come from. Churros come from Frontierland at Disneyland. That's what they do.
1: Well, and especially, and this goes into the conversation, because I am i didn't grow up in a Chicano household. I didn't grow up in a Latino household. I didn't know what churros were before I read the sign churro on a Disneyland sign. Like Mickey I, makes churros. I didn't know how it was pronounced. Yep churro (laughs) that's 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 what i read as (laughs) as as like an eight-year-old kid looking at like what does that word mean like the introduction of churros was from a conglomerate Mm -hmm. that's that was my introduction right and so even jed I, i don't know how long the loop has been open at least two or three years. years
0: it's been two years so
1: I remember even then that's me 29 two years ago when I hear that there's a churro spot opening up I'm like wow that market really isn't saturated in comparison to like think of all the other dessert places that have opened up in your head in the past year right like all right well you got a bakery doing this or you got a different type of ice cream every time of the week doing something else but to me There was maybe one spot other than Loop that wasn't Disneyland in my 20s. that I was like, oh, yeah, there's a place that does churros somewhere in Orange County. Costco. Yep. Costco, too. Costco did it. Yeah, that's true. Costco
2: became the next. So, like, it was always Disneyland. And then I was like, oh, shit. Costco is copying Disneyland. Like, that's how naive I was. (laughs) But that's how good both of their marketing and scale was out the gate and how they were in tune to churros being a fire dessert. Absolutely. But, like, none of them allotted us any sort of additional information. And maybe they didn't feel it was their diligence duty? to have to, yeah, duty to have do to? it. Like, they're they didn't have to. Like, oh, okay.
1: Chuck Churros. Bro, I'm <laughs> Churros, bro. Right next to
2: the $1. fifty <laughs> hot dog and soda and the dollar pizza slice. I'm going to sell you also something that just tastes good and it's fried and it's delicious. Like, this is not an education to us. You're not going to Costco to get educated. You're going to get fucking five dollar turkeys at the end of the store like that's what you're yeah. doing
1: and and that's actually a crazy uh markets <sighs> that's a crazy market signal because when you think about when i don't know when costco debuted the churro it had them growing up i don't know when that was but if that's sometime in the 90s or early 2000 i have no idea but if you think about what that menu was like when they were serving churros right it was You could grab a slice of pizza or a whole pizza. You could grab a chicken bake. Oh yeah. Yep. And and (laughs) you could grab a hot dog with a soda for a dollar, or you get a churro. Like those. If that was how popular, how much they knew they could push a single item to be one of four or five menu items for the hundreds of thousands of people across Costco stores, what they're ordering, like. Yeah, if you don't want pizza, we bet you want a churro. Like that's, yeah. that's Actually, crazy. Yeah, that's... And to think that they were making that making that money and there weren't there wasn't a quality craft version anywhere else. Like that Disneyland and Costco dominated the churro market for 10 <laughs> for 10 plus fucking years. That's Yo, crazy. Shout
2: out to the Costco churro cuz yes. it was like one tenth the price of what you get at Disneyland. True. Yep. And, double the size. And it's double the size and it twists apart and becomes two churros. <laughs> <laughs> How amazing was that? Chur- I loved Costco's churros. Yeah. I didn't like, I don't totally get the Disneyland hype of churros. Like, I was more of a fat boy. I wanted to go straight to the chimichangas, which is also another <laughs> thing. I was like, oh shit, Disneyland is my first taste of chimichangas. Sure. Like, that was wild too. But, yo, shout out to the Costco churro that twists apart for a dollar.
1: It's 50 cents a churro at that point. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Incredible. And and that, to me, is, like, the backdrop for loop opening, Absolutely. It's, like, there is no other place that – look, I'm in food media. I've lived in Orange County my entire life. I knew of one other place outside of Costco and Disneyland that sold a churro, and I never had it. So, to me, there seemed like a pretty big market opportunity – to talk about churros so tell us about the start of the loop well yeah it's definitely from the nostalgia
0: of of churros I- itself i mean we live in southern california and churros are just so i mean it's a part of our lives over mm. here um so that was a, a big reason why we opened something outside of that oddly enough what we were seeing was that there were so many churro places opening in asia my partners are vietnamese i'm filipino um, we saw a lot of churro places opening in Asia and out of all places, Asia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're kind of just, you know, we need to open up a brick and mortar here in Southern California where, you know, churros are just so nostalgic to everyone. People know it from Disneyland. People know it from Costco. People know it from downtown LA, a Fashion District or anywhere, you know, that you are over there in the carts. So we kind of, <coughs> sorry, <laughs> we kind of um, created that, me sure that we we had something that was like that, but it was it was also he made me wonder like why does has no one done this? You know, why has no one created a dessert shop that's just strictly churros? It was always coming out of a cart, even in Disneyland. It was just coming out of a, you know, at Costco, it was just coming out of a walk out up window. It's not a specific restaurant. And and that made me think, is this is this even an, a, a viable business before even opening it? Um, And that's why we had to really be creative and really twist it around into different ways that you can customize a churro Other than just having a cinnamon sugar churro, which is just as great. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I love is a regular cinnamon sugar churro Mm -hmm. Um, But that's that was what forced us to kind of be more creative with with what we wanted to serve um, and right off the gates, we just made sure that we had, you know, not just necessarily great churros, but we had a great dessert
2: all over um, and researched the shit out of it. Talk to me I about don't. that research, because uh, did any thought of authenticity cross your mind in terms of... And again, I'm not vouching for authenticity one way or another, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm just asking like what what research went into it and did anything cross your mind about... I wonder how certain people will taste this churro. Was the benchmark for you the Costco's and the Disneylands of the world or were the the spots that you're trying in downtown LA, for example? Like what what was that research like?
0: Um, the research was a lot of places in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, we went through a lot of, you know, just restaurants that had um, churros in their dessert menu that we hear was really good or just actual churro spots um, in L.A. There were there were a couple of brick and mortar and everything, too, mm-hmm. over in L.A. Um, and um, and just very, a lot of very traditional places. Um, I, can't, I don't know why. I El Torito? El Torito. No. (laughs) No. El Torito Brush Buffet (laughs) churros. There's a great
1: churro. Fire. Fire. (laughs) Jeff, you don't like El Torito Brush Buffet? Okay, here's Uh, here's the thing. I'm going to go on a rant on churros real quick. If you eat a churro that wasn't fried in the last five minutes, it's not as good as a churro that is fried in the last five minutes. Okay. So the majority of churros I had growing up from Disneyland even to Costco because Costco would batch them Mm -hmm. is something that might have been sitting under a heat lamp and it's warm enough to still be good it's crispy enough to still be fine but I don't know the last time that you've had loop churros for me it was last week Mm. I went with my girlfriend Jeff and goes a lot, apparently. I, I go at not. least, I, I go no at least once a month. I go at least once a month. Jeff uh, has this like secret churro life we not know. All I know <laughs> on this podcast. I've been meaning to tell people for a long time <laughs> wow. Which that location? I have this addiction. <laughs> the, the Westminster location okay. or Garden Grove. What, okay, OG. the OG location. OG. And the crunch you get from a loop churro, mm. you just don't get it. Like in other churros unless it's like fresh out of the fryer. And that to me is like the defining better experience than not. And now when I go to Disneyland, I cannot touch a churro they're because soft. They're, they're, soft. they're soft. Some of them, even if they're under a heat lamp, which they aren't they're in a metal tray next to the machine, just like the high chance, high odds that it's pretty crappy actually. Mm. So again, that's like my mini rant of fresh yeah. frying churros is like, just that's going to be an introduction for a ton of people. I'm not saying it's going to be new to you if you're from a Chicano culture or a Spanish culture or even what we talked about before, Jed, with the Filipino culture. I don't know any of that. I'm, I am I didn't grow up there. I didn't have that. So the the loop was my first introduction into a fresh fried churro. And that to me is like a major difference into what I've had before.
0: Absolutely. And that was one of the big things that we wanted to make sure that we did was having fresh fried churros. Um, especially for a dessert place and honestly in the business end of things to have a hood in your mm-hmm. dessert spot and not and have to invest in that and make it like a grease trap everything. I mean, you,
2: you were all, all of a sudden in a full blown restaurant. Um, You also needed your loop churros to be so crispy that they stood in ice cream like you can't have a soft flimsy churro. So if you guys aren't familiar with the loop churros, a lot of I think a lot of your early success too came from how visually arresting and how Mm -hmm. uh, unseen you had seen churros like that before. Like churros, not how they are traditionally, but the churros that we had come to understand in our like. American culture are these either straight-line churros that look like a stick or maybe the twist that you saw At Costco, Mm -hmm. but what we started seeing on the loops Instagram and daily food feeds Instagram and thus Reverberating through the online foodie community was this loop churro It's an actual loop churro that sits in a bed of ice cream and so it had to stand and you now have this showpiece every time you go to the loop churros so I'm taking yeah. I'm taking a lot of your of your light and shine no. of what you guys went into doing that, but that had to have been a foresight.
0: Well, yeah, that was also a, a homage to to traditional churros. Churros, in a traditional sense, in Spain, come in a loop shape. Mm. It's it's like almost like a little donut, but it's always in this little loop shape. Mm-hmm. Um, And so that's that's no claim to fame from us. You know, it's just something that we did that was just an exaggerated version of it that just Mm. made it look a little bit interesting um, and made it okay to stand up in ice cream (laughs) and easy, honestly, to um, to glaze. We had glazes, we had toppings Mm. and it was probably the best and easiest way for us to be able to put it on a fresh fried churro without it breaking as we do it, you know. So um, there was a lot that went into it. Like I said, the research part of it was just really looking into a lot of different churros that were going on and what how other people made churros, um, and, and we did so many different tests. I, a lot of people don't know this, but our churros bear are, are completely vegan. Um, yeah, we, um, we, and it was just a taste test. It just tasted better. Mm. Um, we had tried different kinds of churros, different mixes. And it's just in the end of the day, that vegan one was just like, all right, let's go with this one. Mm. Um, so yeah, a lot went into it a lot more than just like putting up a a churro stand and like crossing my fingers and
1: hoping it's going to (laughs) work. Let's go back to the research because as you guys are thinking about opening your first location which is Westminster, California. Westminster. So Westminster, California, heavy Vietnamese, American, um, heavy Vietnamese of little Saigon. Yeah. So little Saigon. Um, but outside of that city, you are creating a churro concept and putting it in Southern California, which is a huge Chicano and Latino population did you know that your concept wouldn't be for some people based on that population or, or some of the comments that you've received, which we don't support it. Was that really surprising to you? Did they happen from the beginning? Um, is it mostly people that potentially from Latin and Chicano descent that are upset that there's a churro stand having, you know, perceived success, at least on Instagram, Uh um, lines out the door and things of that nature. Tell me about the research that went into uh, the programming for the loop and what your expectations were for feedback. I I will tell you this much. I did not know what
0: to expect whatsoever going into it or even um, presenting it. I just wanted to have people to have a great experience, dessert experience, mm-hmm. churros or not. Um, I wanted people to have a different experience, something that was more modern, something that, you know, people had, could not leave my restaurant without taking a picture of their, you know, product. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't, I honestly didn't think anything too much until I started seeing it um, in comments and everything. And this doesn't, didn't happen until... um, maybe a couple of months in we right off the bat we were really blessed with success i mean it was insane right when we opened it was just i i couldn't even explain we couldn't even catch up to the the demand um and we had to restructure our business completely for the volume because we did not expect that kind of volume so all of a sudden we had to have a completely different business model than what we had gone into it with what was that because um, I think
2: people are going to try to open up a restaurant like yours and not know, and I, I, I don't yeah. know anything about that. You know
0: that. what? Um, our whole thing was like, let's be like Chipotle. I'm mm. going to start with a bear churro. You're going to tell me if you want sugar, cinnamon sugar. You're going to tell me what glaze you want. You're going to tell me what topping you want. You're going to tell me if you want it in a soft serve. Just right down the line, and mm-hmm. we thought, like, this is, a, this is Chipotle's concept. It's going to work amazing. It's not going to work amazing when you have one person over there trying to get eight churros Mm -hmm. telling you what to put on their churros Mm -hmm. and you have a line of 200 people behind them, you know?
1: (laughs) So it was, so (laughs) you needed to get, and that's what I noticed. So literally there's a sign when I walk into the Westminster location, order at the register. So Mm -hmm. that was shifting from Order at the start of the line to get your order in because we need multiple people focused on getting all these orders out. And it also sounds like tons of people, even if they were a single person or a duo in line, they might be ordering eight churros. So going one by one through that process would literally take 10 minutes on a single order of eight churros. Absolutely. So we pretty much had to adjust it by by volume
0: pretty much. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what the original question was. Now. <laughs> well, I was just
1: the change from like the premise of the restaurant, how you had to change workflow. I mean, did you have to change equipment? Did you like need more fryers? Did you were like, once you have the hood, you have the hood. So well, yep. was there anything else that you had to adjust to meet that demand? I, I, a lot of things. We
0: we had thought in our heads, oh, we just need to make dough once a day. And, and all of a sudden we were making dough every hour, you know, and wow. and it's, this is, these are fresh turros. We make our own mix, all this stuff. So um, it, it was just, it was a lot more to it, but it was, like I said, it was great.
1: So tell me about the first comments that you started to see kind of pop up through I'm assuming Daily Food Feeds IG, The Loops IG. Yep. And what was did you kind of write them off at first? Because that's something that I would do. If we were talking about my restaurant, or even if we're just talking about Food Beast, the business that I'm an owner in. There's a hundred thousand comments and one is an yeah. asshole. Like We have, like we take negative comments with a grain of salt because of just how many we receive. <laughs> like like I, I if I uh, wanted to make my day of like sifting through negative comments I probably could but I also know that how unhealthy that is like for a person but shout out to the haters (laughs) but I'm curious when did you start actually noticing and when did you start getting I don't know when was there an emotional reaction to it um, based on either the volume or the types of things that were said
0: you know um, like I said right off the bat probably I the loop the first location is in the heart of little saigon um it was really popular right away there was a lot of people going into little saigon who've never been to little saigon before Mm -hmm. um automatically kind of judge the area automatically judge my staff because Mm -hmm. my staff is predominantly asian just because it's the area that we're in um so we get you know a lot of feedback and like I said, most of the feedback has been absolutely positive. I'm never gonna overshadow that. It has been amazing, but then you, you know, I read everything. I see the Yelp reviews. I see the comments. I see, you know, anything that goes out there. And you will, I will, I start seeing that, you know, oh Asians, it's Asians making churros. How good could this be, you know? And and it's not, none of it really hurts me. I I get it. I get how you know people can be. Um, I think the first time that it really started bugging me, and this was like a year ago, Tastemade made this amazing video of um, our um, mermaid churro mm-hmm. at the time. And I was just reading through comments and everything like that. I think this, the first time it really bugged me was uh, um, I, I found a name of um, an Orange County food writer mm. that was um, on there just bashing us. Like, and just his comments between his friends and everything. Just saying, it's, you know, churros and little Saigon. Like, how good could they be? All this other stuff. Um, and I already had, like, some kind of sentiment towards um, media in Orange County during that time. To me, it was really surprising that we would get so much national news attention.
2: And we, no one in OC was giving you love?
0: National news that we have. We were on Cosmo. We were on Today Show. We were on, you know, all these great things. And then locally, in our home, in Orange County, where I am from, where I grew up, there is no kind of support from from Orange County media. I'm not, I'm not saying not from all of them. I'm just saying from the major players in there. There was just very
2: little, like... Why do you think that is?
0: And I, you know, I still think about it to this day. And I just think, I think it was partially because of the, their, their thing. The lack of authenticity, probably, mm. with
1: it. Their perceived lack of authenticity of your concept. Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes. Um, and I mean, like I said, it was just, it's
0: kind of this, been this push and pull with, you know, Orange County tradition, uh, like print media and everything, where, you know, uh, in worst food trends of 2017, um, Loop Churros, blah, blah, blah. Only Damn. only place that did that was Orange County Media. And I'm mm-hmm. like, and it's kind of, it's hard for me because like I said, I grew up in Orange County. I love Orange County. I think the food is great over here. But do I think it's, if it's, it's represented the correct way all the time? No, it's not always about the restaurants on Newport Beach and Laguna Beach and all this other stuff. And that's why I think the foodie culture in, in Orange County has grown to be so big is because... Of our distrust in in actual recommendations from what we've seen mm. of what orange county food is um so that was probably the first place that i kind of just took a look and was just like uh, i don't know yeah. you know i don't know and, and i was just so blessed to have something where i could i could talk about my business on my own on daily food feed you were fortunate happy. enough to have your own exactly. voice and
2: platform because if the, I don't even know if the Register or the Weekly or whatever mm-hmm. didn't talk about you. It used to be that would be, might be
0: the end. Yeah, which you. is which was completely, honestly. Like I was just, I'm completely fine with it. But like, kind of, I guess you obviously see, didn't need it. No, yeah. Um, but it's also, it's just one of those things about living in Orange County. This is this is my home. You know, like mm. um, it's funny to me that and I'll say this like flat out is a lot of orange County, like traditional print media. I'm not saying all of them or anything like that, but a lot of them, I I, I don't feel like support these businesses that are actually growing and getting people into orange County. Mm -hmm. I opened the loop churros. There was a line of 200 to 300 people in there. All of them coming from different counties, different places, different States coming into orange County. And i love that i love that people are coming to see my county i love that people are coming to see little saigon for the first time i love that they're gonna go to a pho restaurant next door now Mm. because they know it's over there you know like that's the cool stuff to me and i think that's what orange county should be you know like so that was a that was a i guess the first part of me kind of feeling that like and having some kind of emotion towards it was that i felt like um and it was a very small thing that like, it just kind of triggered me that was just like, you know, what? it's just because like there isn't the authenticity isn't there. And I get it. That could be an opinion about it. But we just did things differently. And then, you know, comments like as we go through, you know, um, we have, you know, the video world became crazy. There's more videos on us, more videos of the owners, more videos of our staff, you know, making churros. And there would always be the comments um, you know, the Asians making churros like I don't I wouldn't even try that because it's it's an Asian owned business. Um, and like I said, all that is OK. But then it goes into that that fine line of being racist. And yeah. that's where it's kind of like I get like. Uh, oh.
2: So let's like, connect the dots a little bit because. Yep. Um, going a little bit back to the style that daily food feed kind of brought forth. Mm hmm a lot of that style of putting the food first, gruesome, in your face, gorgeous, accessible. You leverage that style into this early success of The Loop and continued success of The Loop. Yes. So for lack of a better term, Daily Food Feed and The Loop churros were faceless brands at first. Mm -hmm. The food was forward, but it wasn't about jed's daily food feed or a filipino guy and two vietnamese people creating churros none of that was used in the marketing it was here's a really dope dessert spot a dessert dessert concept it was more orange county than anything
1: explain what you mean by that because i think not everyone understands that because that's a kind of a loaded statement sure sure um
2: orange county the, the way that you're describing the friction that you have with traditional media, mm-hmm. Orange County has become a hotbed of Instagram first, Instagram forward food as opposed to not that those aren't quality, but because Instagram forward first, people aren't recognizing the quality of particular food. And that's why... As much as Orange County is probably top in the country in terms of Instagram food and food that we discuss on social media, mm-hmm. it's not top of the discussion when it comes to quality. For better or worse. And and that's why people relate the success of, say, After's Ice Cream with almost 30 locations, The Loop. Uh, and numerous other really powerfully visually arresting foods that work well on social media is tied to a lot of the trends coming out of Orange County. Slapfish, like all these are yeah. very, very visually forward foods that people can understand across the country. And that's what Orange County, in my opinion, is starting to become known for. Mm-hmm. I don't think traditional media is ready to accept that or to talk about that in any sort of capacity that will give you any sort of worth for what you've achieved. Um, So I say all that. I don't really want to go down that path. But that's what I mean when I say like there's an Orange County sensibility to to what is happening. Um, And a lot of people are taking note and doing it in (coughs) New York and doing it in these places because that is drawing attention. That is a... For better or worse, how we're disseminating our food content. Now, I want to talk about how Daily Food Feed and other Instagrammers, food Instagrammers, went from being faceless, putting the food forward, and then, I don't know at what point, you start showing Jed the person. Yeah. Wanting people to know about you. Because as soon, in the time that you started doing that, other food Instagrammers started doing that as well. Yeah. Where... Why did you do that? Why did you start showing your audience your face?
0: I think it all started with just the development of Snapchat, honestly, initially. Mm. Um, And that's where um, I kind of started putting myself out there a little bit more um, showing my face and like talking and just giving my opinions about different things. Um, And I think one of the main things was I liked it because you, Ended up meeting people like people just like that. That's how I ended up meeting Greg and Rebecca from Devour Power, mm. and who are now some of my best friends from across the you know across the country. Um, and I met them through Snapchat, and that's because we can feel out each other's personality that way, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but yeah, it was kind of just one of those things that uh, I was comfortable with it. And, you know, not necessarily everyone is comfortable with it, but I'm comfortable with it. I, I can you know, I have no problem talking to my audience and everything like that, but it's also finding that fine balance of, you know, people, what people want to see and, and, and don't want to see necessarily too.
1: Isn't it also an extension of your brand though? Absolutely. Because when you're walking on the street and you're like daily food feed, like, yeah, they'll can check you out on Instagram. And, and then if someone else mentions another foodie account that, has replicated your style. I think it's hard to, it's hard to differentiate now in 2019, not when accounts were started, not as Mm -hmm. the styles have were being created, but now there's so much food in feed. There's a type of influencer that if you showed me blind, is this daily food feed? Is this food beast? Is this whoever? Like, I don't know. I don't know because Everyone's going for engagement. Everyone's going for likes. And there are certain things that we've all found out that we could do that helps that. Right. Uh-huh. And and why I mentioned that is because if you're extending your brand, because Jed is not something that can be replicated, right? Your yeah. personality, your take on things is putting yourself out there. Did you also see a rise in criticism because now you, the Filipino American that people can see is not Chicano or Latino, is the guy behind the loop. Is, are you putting is that more of a target now? And did you see that once? Did these comments, and, and the comment that I think specifically it? at least inspired you to post about your experience and post uh-huh. about your background and context was quote unquote kind of disappointing when it's Asians running a churro joint probably can't even pronounce the rolling R in it right. Like when were you seeing an influx of those type of comments when you're putting your face on your feed? That
0: happens whenever we have a video that shows our staff our owners Mm. anything like that it's just collective and even our customers honestly we have a a a good base of of asian customers also um that's usually when it happens um and i mean I'll, i'll dig into that a little bit more just that that comment it's one of many one of many um, it was just one that just, that just stood out and was just something that I, I felt like I needed to talk about. At that time, I was in the Philippines. Um, I had bought churros from the Philippines. A lot of people don't know this, but churros are also very prevalent in the Philippines. Um, where, where I grew up, I was born, um, and I had churros. It was, it was a Christmas thing. You kind of get it as a Christmas treat. Hmm. Um, and churros are there because you know it's a Spanish. It was colonized by the Spanish. Um, so anyhow, um, yeah, I kind of, that was all along the same line of when I I was opening my Chino Hills location. Um, we put out a lot of videos of, you know, us, you know, making, making churros, our our grand opening, um, the owners and, and and that's where uh, more of these comments usually come up it's not usually in our photos or anything like that. It's usually
2: when, when there's some kind of videos that shows the actual people and our staff and everything like that. Did this comment go a little further because instead of just saying kind of disappointing when it's Asians running a churro joint, if it was that period. If it was that, then. You would 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 But then, then the added, like, probably can't even pronounce the rolling R yes. in it, right? That's what made me feel some type of way. Absolutely. Because it, I'm a Lebanese American person and now I feel uncomfortable for a moment. I'm just going to go eat churros. But, like, do I not pronounce the churro right? Am I not allowed to have it? Because yeah. someone, some troll, faceless troll, he his his icon is a clown. I actually put the clown over there. Oh, did you? <laughs> it's more fitting than whatever it was. Um, You know, that faceless troll is... Adding to a conversation in such a negative way, in my opinion, because if we want to have that discussion, let's have a discussion. I'm all for it. I don't think we should be afraid to have that discussion and learn a little bit more about churros if you want to do it in the comment. But as soon as you start throwing people under the bus for enunciation, like now I feel uncomfortable getting some dessert that I love and like I'm Lebanese American everyone around me my best friends pronounce hummus wrong Mm -hmm. like do you like it good are you hurting me no i'm not gonna slap you (laughs) in the face for pronouncing hummus wrong right like that's not stopping me from doing it i can see why that comment went a little too far yeah um now i'm trying to I think it's fair, though, for us to run through the exercise of trying to understand where people come from. Yeah. And being able to verbalize what it's like to have their food appropriated. Mm -hmm. You know, if I had to run through an example, like if I found out some, some white guy was running a successful hummus joint better than any Middle Eastern person, my first gut would be like, damn. Oh, I missed the boat on that. Like, that dude's making money off of my culture. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a privileged white Lebanese American who did not take full advantage of it. And I I have no soapbox to stand on to say that I couldn't have done that. So I, I that's why I don't talk that shit, that I don't spew that venom mm-hmm. about cultural appropriation, about my because I had every right and privilege and accessibility to do whatever I want business owner wise if someone else enjoys my culture and is now making it now, I can't does does black culture and Mexican culture a, a lot that same privilege or do they have the same means out the gate on average? No, and I think that's why people are trying to protect and spew that venom. Do I know who this troll is? Do I know anything about that? No. Do I think the way combating racism with more racism is mm-hmm. dumb as fuck and not productive at all? Mm-hmm. So, but I think there is a balance of having a discussion about origins of things, but not being afraid to try new things. Cause I would love if someone came along and presented me with some fire hummus in a way that I never thought of it. And I don't care if it's Lebanese from Israel, from Palestine. One thing that I've seen recently is I've noticed the most bickering that comes about cultural appropriation is from people like right across the, sh- the table from you. Someone that is a Lebanese person yelling at a Palestinian person yelling at an Egyptian person over where the origins of tabbouleh come from. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we bickering over that? But to understand where they come from, to understand that maybe myself, As an example, the only reference that I have is like growing up, I'd have hummus and pita in my sack lunch going to a predominantly all white school and getting chastised for it or looked that differently. So if I wanted to stand on a soapbox, which I will not, should not, could not, that I had to go through some quote unquote shit and I I had to weather the storm of people trying to understand hummus for then a chain like lemonade or whatever to like now present hummus to the masses because it's so convenient. I could see why someone who had to go through more shit than I did would feel some type of way about someone who had to if churros was a thing for them that like people didn't like growing up, but had they had to weather that storm and then to see successful Asian Americans taking advantage of it and making a business off it. I can see where the emotion comes from. I don't validate it at all, but I just want I think that's yeah. an example of like trying to understand the other side of the coin and understanding where that emotion comes from. Yeah.
0: And uh, to me, I think there are different levels of it and, and some of it appropriate and some of it, off- obviously, what I think is not appropriate, too. Mm-hmm. Um, for, uh, in my case, with churros in general, is that it's just such a big part of Southern California culture is Mexican cuisine. Like, you're, it's it's just a part of you. Mm-hmm. Either way around, it's a part of you. You know, any ethnicity that you are, it's just a part. A part of you so it's just to have ownership in something like churros to me was a little bit is a little bit crazy but there are a lot of great examples that have been coming up um throughout the year that you know where it is appropriate where it's, i don't think it's appropriate um one great example is um do you guys you guys know about aloha pokey and how they trademarked the word aloha
2: oh right, right. yeah they tra-
0: trademarked the word aloha um it's a, a pokey place from chicago um and they started sending cease and desist letters to anyone that had aloha in their name including mm-hmm. hawaii and to me that is absolutely inappropriate yes flagrant that is that is i i mean the word aloha is it's a feeling it's a it's a it's it's hawaii you know yes. <laughs> i don't think that's a that's definitely that i don't think that's the right way of you know of doing anything that's why i think you know i have my own culture too and there's certain things that i have a lot of ownership too and um, when I see examples like that, that's, that's a little too much. And then, I mean, I work with a lot of other restaurants too. I work with, um, you know, a, a mac and cheese place where the owners are Indian. Mm. You know, I work with, um, a taco place that claims it's, it's original American taco. All of them get some kind of heat or other, you know, because of the cultural backgrounds of, of, you know, the owners themselves. Well, little did they know there's just so much more behind it um, you know this the Indian place the um, the mac and cheese place that has the Indian owners um, her mom made mac and cheese in an Indian style when she was growing up as a kid and that's why she loves mac and cheese you know there's a story behind everything um, Jim Jimboy Tacos is what I'm talking about yeah. with the original American taco Um this guy, he was an immigrant from Sweden, loved tacos, and he just put together this taco with Parmesan on it and like American cheese, and tasted great. And guess what? It's been out since like the the 50s, and it's people still have something to talk about it. There's just so many different levels of it. It just comes up. It's come up. I feel like more and more and more this year, and I just think like like food is one of those things that I don't think needs that that word. You know,
1: here's a line to me. There's a there's a specific line between. The Aloha Poke Shop, the the Fruteria in San Diego that we've talked on a previous podcast episode. Check it out if you want to know more about the Caucasian-owned and now clothes fruteria in San Diego and Kooks burritos in Portland. If these are all stories you should read about. Mm. And that's on one side of the spectrum. And I think everything else is on the other side, or there's a line in the middle. And if you talk about gym boys, and if you talk about, uh, the loop to me, it sits across this line on the other side. What makes the, what makes it flagrant to me in the three things that I mentioned with fruteria, cooks, Aloha, the way they are presenting and marketing their cuisine is in a way that is perceived to be authentic and it's exploiting that culture so, and and so then it becomes ex- explicit, right you're where you're you're specifically tying your business and your name to something to make it seem even more legitimate than it is right when i went to the loop i don't see a sub you know us uh a subtitle of saving of, you from regular ass yeah or like right? the loop Mexican churros like I don't I don't I don't when they're when they're talking about the churros in their feed I there isn't an homage to Latin flavors into what's happening in their churros right and when I enter as a consumer I don't have that preconceived oh this is a place trying to market authentic Chicano Latino churros I know what I know what I'm getting into and I think that's that's for me where the line is. If you're specifically, if you're, if you're final table chef, Darren McLean, and you have a Japanese Japanese restaurant in Calgary, Canada, you better bet he's been to Japan, has immersed himself in culture. If you watch the show final table, you'll see him speak Japanese to the Japanese judges and you'll, you'll see a Michelin star chef go, I like your food, to this white boy from Canada. Mm-hmm. And that to me is like, if you're going to present yourself, I'm Chef Darren and I have a Japanese specific restaurant in Calgary, then back, then back it up with immersing yourself in that culture Absolutely. and immersing yourself in that cuisine. But should we take away... The open doors of people that have started a business and haven't tried to attach authenticity and a specific culture to their cuisine, I don't I don't think that's our job. And why I don't think it's our job is because we choose where we spend our own money. Mm-hmm. So if Oscar, who's a videographer here at Food Beast, he says I think. I think the biggest takeaway for me as a consumer is when I hear that a place is selling authentic foods, but the owners of a different culture, race, ethnicity has to take my money elsewhere. Same. If I don't want if I don't want the loop churro, I don't have to go there. I can go find a Mexican churro spot in Anaheim, in Los Angeles, and go on that search and figure that out. It is available. Jed is not serving. The Loop isn't for everyone. Food Beast isn't for anyone. Daily Food Feed isn't for everyone. Mm-hmm. And we won't exist if we try to cater to everyone. And so, so for me, it's like decide with your money. If, you, if that place isn't for you, cool. Don't go there. And unless they're doing something super flagrant to your culture, shut up. If they are, bring it to the masses. And Food Beast, we want to talk about it. Because that's not something where I think we should let it slide. But I think just like the this complaining culture to complain when there also isn't the context of churro history. So if you're going to complain to Jed in his feed like, bruh, you're not Chicano and you're not Latin. Cool. Well, like tell me about the histories of churros. Tell me that you know that it potentially started with the Chinese donut in China was picked up by Portuguese sailors and then brought to the Iberian Peninsula. Did you know that? Or is that filtered in your comment? Or maybe the other origin story of churros is true. Maybe the fact that, uh, shepherds in Spain who didn't have ovens to bake things that they only could do fried dough on a stove and that there's a, there's a uh, a sheep called the chura in Spain because the horns of the sheep kind of looks like a churro. Like, if you have that context and Jed's doing something flagrant to you or the culture, do it. But if you're going to just do it because, like, bro, you're in little Saigon and you guys are Vietnamese and Filipino and you don't even know churros are served in the Philippines, like, fuck you. I mean, I agree.
2: I think the the last part that I'll talk about this particular sex because I also want to talk about what Gordon Ramsay's doing and decide if you guys think this shit's flagrant or not. I just don't want to assume that every culture in our geography because the only thing we have context to is here in America. Yep, frankly that we all are on an equal playing field to spend with our money and decide. So the idea that some, like a a quote of like, well, if you don't want to spend with this one, but like, what if Jed is equipped? And I'm not saying he is, but what if Jed or someone like Jed is equipped better to promote a churro in his voice and vision better than the person who might quote unquote be able to make it more authentic we won't be able to hear that voice because just because we can spend with our money and with our dollar and choose like what if they don't have the fucking iphone that we have to be able to take the photos to be able to make decisions to be able to get a loan from a bank the way that someone else can so again i'm not In this particular example, churros have been in Southern California lexicon long enough that if you wanted to take advantage of that opportunity, we're on somewhat of an equal playing field. Somewhat. But it's saying to spend with our money and deciding with our dollar is a hard pill to swallow when people aren't on an equal playing field. People just aren't. Like Jed... Came from immigrant parents that brought him to this country. Jed wasn't even born here. He was born in the Philippines, yeah. right? Like, so. But there are things there. I don't know the entirety of Jed's upbringing, but there are things where I know he has access to certain things, probably more than other people. Like, Again, that's why I can't talk shit about Lebanese, my Lebanese roots when I see someone else taking advantage of it because I had all the... Op- if I wanted to start a Lebanese startup or whatever, I could have done it and I didn't. That's on me. But like, if I'm a... Black American who can't get a loan from a bank for some whatever reason like I'm already behind on certain things to be able to do that And I think that's where people's emotions come from when they see parts of their culture Being monetized by people that aren't of that culture again. I'm the last person I don't like this pc culture of like complaining and doing all this shit and dragging people for that because I want to see what new things come out But I just think it's good for us to all understand that people start at different places they have different amounts of money in their bank account when they are born they are privileged to different amounts of things and different amount of knowledge different amount of people that can make things easier for them doesn't discredit for example jed the amount of work it's to have a successful business i know millionaires that open restaurants that fail in the first month i know and and and, and fumble and fuck up and do all that So, that's not taking away from the incredible success that Jed has earned and is deserved and all of that. I just think it's important to understand where a lot of emotions come from. And I don't want to value and validate the way people say things. Cause, like, I also didn't learn anything from that comment. To your point, Jeff, like, I didn't learn anything from that comment the way I just learned from the amount of culture you just gave me trying to have just a decent conversation about it. But, like,
1: I don't know. I just think, like, and that's, and that's why I'm saying to me, like, the loop isn't going to be for everybody. Absolutely. And sure. if you're someone that wants to support the the mom and pop business owner for it. Los Angeles churros, like, I want them to be there too. Mm-hmm. And I think you sh- and I think people should support them because if they're doing something authentic and tastes good, it should be supported. But then to bash an owner, sure, yeah, yeah. like, well. Why does that have to be negative? You can choose not to go there, and you could go somewhere else. Now, again, if you think, if there's a a company, right, that you feel like is completely ripping off the culture, using that culture as marketing, right? The big thing for me about the frutería, right? Oh yeah, is awful. Okay, so it. I don't know. It's a twenty-something millennial that opened, uh. A juice and fruit. Type Worst store. thing is she didn't open it. She she. It wasn't open. It was a Kickstarter. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was a Kickstarter. I, I up on that. But um. and the thing is, all right, we've talked about now on this podcast right now. The word churro is something that's in our nomenclature. It's in our vernacular in mm-hmm. Southern California. Whether you're Chicano or a Latino or not, you probably know what a churro is because of what we mentioned. Disneyland sells it. Mm-hmm. Costco sells it, it's around. There isn't, there isn't fruterias around that aren't mom and pop, probably immigrant or generations of immigrant based owners that are doing very specific things. And as soon as you bring your bullshit kale smoothie, whatever, to and then call it fruteria and you're marketing it
2: as fruteria. And you're saving an area. That was a big portion of, and again, all this goes down to the marketing and the positioning, which will echo Is like, yeah. Jed, with your loop, you didn't come out the gate touting authenticity. You touted yeah. a dessert experience that you, yep. you're just going to get, you're going to come here, you're going to get it, dessert experience, visually arresting the fruteria example, poor woman, like she's going to learn that like
1: she tried to co-opt a culture and tried to act. She, act- she acted like she was saving a community mm-hmm. in her, in this Kickstarter video. And that's where I, we're going Food Beast is going to continue to be a proponent to call out stories like that because that that's really important. And that's why I'm passionate because there has to be a line. And that, for me personally, is the line.
0: Yeah. I mean, to what Eli was saying, too, about... Um... I I mean, we live in America. That's the great part about it. You know, Mm -hmm. like um, you are, you know, you get the opportunity that, you know, whatever that comes to you or whatever you work hard for, whatever. Um, Like you guys are saying, I, I was born in the Philippines. I came to America when I was six years old. My parents had nothing coming here. They were just trying to give me as much opportunity as possible to be in this country and to succeed, to learn as much as I can through school. To you know, to just just push forward and have the opportunities that they never got when they were in the Philippines. Um, I'm a little bit more connected to this just because I just came back from there. Yeah. But um, I mean, everything that has built up to pretty much the opportunities that I have now and that was able to you know capitalize on, even in just making a churro restaurant happen. Mm. Um, all of that comes from hard work and 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 the opportunity these opportunities didn't come because of my position because we I was I grew up in a poor family i, I didn't have you know a silver spoon in my in my mouth i didn't you know i didn't have a lot of money growing up i didn't get to go to disneyland very often but when i did i was i got churros and i was really excited about it yeah. um so it's it's kind of one of those things that's just like you know it's just It it depends on the person. Honestly, at the end of the day, it's just like the American thing. You know, we talk about so many different ethnicities and cultural appropriation, all this other stuff. America is built on different races, ethnicities, cultures, all this other stuff. And what's beautiful about it, I think, is that we're able to mix and commingle and see all the different ways that we can kind of create different great things outside food
1: and outside of food. Mm -hmm. So, And I think this country is based off of innovation. Yes. And... When I've never, I haven't spoke to Roy Choi about Kogi. I'm sure he got hate at some point early on of like, what are you doing putting bulgogi in a taco? Mm -hmm. And I'm not from uh, a background with uh, a culture that has tacos as part of its, uh, as part of its like food zeitgeist. So I, you know, I don't feel some type of way about it, but as an American, I'm stoked on Kogi. I'm thankful thankful that it existed and pushed boundaries on what a taco is because I feel like I have iterations of that taco all the time from various different restaurants that wouldn't have put it on a menu without it.
2: It's serving off a truck. You're not serving it at a restaurant, like a really expensive restaurant. Like, you go to the truck the way you would go to a taco truck. So, you learned whether we knew it or not, we learned about truck culture. Then, we learned about, well, what is truck culture? Like, it is. Hardworking people go into a truck because that's what comes to your work site or wherever you're at. You get to learn about that, learn about that food. So it wasn't like co-opting it and leaving it all behind. It was that's why Kogi was so special. But he also didn't talk about that all the way through, which was very brilliant in the marketing and authenticity just to himself and to the Southern California culture that Roy Choi kind of gleaned from was that. This culture can thrive here. I'm not going to leave it behind, despite just opening up, like, a fucking, what, 30,000 square foot amazing <laughs> restaurant base, which is fire. If you guys get a chance to go, his his restaurant best friend is is so, so good. But even that, he's taking elements of L.A. Yeah. culture and what L.A. meant to him. And the Kogi Truck wasn't Mexican. It wasn't Korean. It was L.A. And that's, that's what made it so special. And now he gets to continue that brand in Vegas by bringing L.A. to Vegas. And that, that's why Roy Choi is smart enough to pull something and tightrope a concept like that off. That is a very challenging thing to do. Because that could have gone a hundred different ways. It went the right way. Um, so I'm curious. Talking about you just came back from the Philippines. And recently... Uh, Gordon Ramsay and National Geographic announced that they have this show coming. My notes died on my computer, but I believe the show is called Uncharted. Uncharted, where Gordon Ramsay to the marketing that's around this show early, Gordon Ramsay repels into different countries and fucking challenges <laughs> Rapel, indigenous so yeah. He, uh, military helicopters. Gordon Ramsay <laughs> jumps off of them, uh. repels down into rural villages, and <laughs> combats and battles one-on-one with chefs from that region. So I'm hyper-stylizing it,
1: but that's the... And before we get Jed's take, this is like the quote-unquote actual description like from a <laughs> press release. On what? On this show. On this show, Uncharted. Because I want to talk about the show, and I think it's it's super relatable to this conversation. Each episode of Uncharted will include three key ingredients, unlocking a culture's culinary secrets through exploration and adventure with local food heroes, tracking down high-octane traditions, pastimes, and customs that are specific to the region in hopes of discovering the undiscovered, and finally testing Ramsey against the locals... Pitting his own interpretation of regional dishes against the tried and true classics, so that's the Yo, non Reese. non Eli non Eli version. That's what they're putting out of how they're promoting the show. Pretty accurate though, so how I like describe it. Right? <laughs> F- like, so it's
0: like beat Bobby Flay,
2: but but in, in live and in countries. <laughs> yeah. So, how, how, so uh, Reach, our managing editor, who just walked in, is like rolling his eyes at the description of the show. Um, A lot of people, some of the early criticisms of it is like, dude, you're not Bourdain. Don't do that. Uh, The other ones are like, this is mad colonial. Like, what are you doing going into places? And Gordon has come out to defend it. National Geo has come out to defend the concept. Again, we're judging it. We haven't seen an episode yet. It's not Mm -hmm. out um, but I think it's fair to note that we don't have anything to judge Gordon Ramsay on based on his body of work where he fucking berates and yells. It's funny. I like Gordon Ramsay a lot. I enjoy watching all that stuff. But I think where the hot button stuff is like, are, should he be going to imagine he went to the Philippines, Yeah. went to a rural part of Manila and was like, you know what? Hey, I'm gonna make this dobo way better than you. Because how other, what other energy would he bring? He's not Bourdain who walks in and lets yeah. someone cook for him because he just wants to be a fly on the wall and learn and interpret. Yeah, he's going there under the premise of a cooking challenge where he's going to beat someone at their own cuisine.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some shit and try to defend this show based on it. But I, I'm curious, how do you guys feel about that off rip? About this concept.
0: Right, that sounds a little extreme to me, to be honest. I mean, now, considering it's on National Geographic, if it's more of an educational kind of show and what, you know, showing, you know, cuisines and like how it's cooked and how it's different from other cultures and all this other stuff, great. But then the whole competition element in it just totally throws it off. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine. My, my Lola, who's my grandmother, my, <laughs> she, I mean, <laughs> for you to say that you can make better adobo than her, I'm going to be like, whoa, hold up. <laughs> and, and you're here for what? How many days in the Philippines? Yeah. Um, that's, that's, I, I don't know about that one. That's, that's a little tough for me to swallow. But like I said, if you're learning about it, if you're learning, if you're learning about cuisine that you've never known about before or how to make something the way that great, but I don't know about just straight up. Hey, I challenge you to. Make that chicken adobo. <laughs> you
1: know? I've got two main problems with the show. The first problem is: is there a reason for Gordon outside of the fame? Because I'm assuming if I'm if I'm an executive at Nat Geo and I, and we have a line to get Gordon on a show, I get it. Business put put. Gordon in a show on Nat Geo network fucking sign me up as a, as a corporate entity. It's a good right? algorithm so, Yeah. Okay, cool. Get Gordon, pay him, some, pay him a bunch of money so we can promote a show with Gordon. I get that. I get why you would want to do that. Placing Gordon next to indigenous culture. For premise of a show who's in that boardroom is my first question because in 2019 that's not gonna fly if anyone sitting of color is in that room i just don't think it does i if anyone is sitting of a diverse background in that room i think people are like uh anyone want to put a flag up in the air about how any how any of the people from the cultures that you're about to represent through whatever, 12, 15 episodes of the show are going to feel when this guy potentially cooks next to and describes his dish that he thinks is an homage but a better take because it's competition style? Like, No, remove the competition and most likely find a better host. This This is a show, especially if it's from Nat Geo, where they have an opportunity to elevate someone that sits in the vacuum that is without Bourdain. And as much as Gordon, I I don't watch enough of his stuff. I don't get the feeling that he's the guy that I think we need to put at the top of the totem pole to announce like this is the dude. There are a lot of other people that I think would make sense in contrast with these indigenous cultures than the most famous white chef from the UK. Like, I just don't think that, um, Nat Geo. Here's my premise
2: for a show (laughs) that
1: I think that would actually work with Gordon. About a workshop. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening, Nat Geo, here's the show I want to see. If you're pock committed to Gordon, cool. It's I G get Ram, it. Son. I get it. Some money. Hey, if Food Beast could do a show with Gordon, fuck yeah, <laughs> awesome.
2: I get it. Tune into my episode of Twenty Four Hours Back. Eli with the... Never mind. Go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Eli's on an episode of of F Word, right? No, it's to Twenty Four Hours to Hell and Back or some shit. Okay, one of one of those shows. We're on it. minute, <laughs> a lot. There, guys. There's the plug. Nat Geo. Here's the better show. Gordon goes into these indigenous cultures. He learns about the ingredients. He then brings that indigenous chef to New York and he funds a pop-up of that indigenous chef and of that food and serves it to what is like the global palate of New York City. And that chef gets an opportunity that he would have never seen before serving their food to a new market, giving new people and new experiences. You still get the reality hook of, is this going to make it? Is this Mm, pop up? Are are people going to like it? How are we translating this food to like the New York palate? There are still stakes, and it doesn't insert him competition style next to that chef to build that, to like make a pad Thai dish (laughs) next to a Thai guy who's been making pad Thai for like the entirety of his life.
2: Okay. This is a workshop. Love the idea. But I'm going to be the it next It makes executive. me feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be the next light-skinned executive in the room. <laughs> and I'm going to suggest we do Marcus from The Prophet. He goes, Marcus, uh, I forget his yeah. last name, sorry, Lebanese guy, actually, from The Prophet, uh-huh. great show, where he goes in and he fixes businesses. Amazing. He's business-minded. He's not a chef. He is going to go to all these indigenous countries, either with Gordon or without Gordon. We can lose him. g Ram. <laughs> sorry. Uh, and he goes and he funds the business of a chef so we can get some of that beautiful culture of that. So Marcus is an interesting host Mm. uh, because it's all about business. It's all about business. He go there and he can learn and he's going to pick an indigenous chef from all the places that he goes and gives them the opportunity because what, what this achieves, even what your idea achieves Jeff of Gordon, not just going to, a a, a village in lebanon beating the the old uh taita who makes really dope zatar on a furnace and then leaving that leaving that country like that's a problem that like uh that like bourdain like felt like you basically you go to these countries around the world you utilize them in media and then you leave it's not like you drop a wad of cash and like here's all the trouble that we like we we gave right you, you put a lens on them for a little bit you highlight it but a lot of these hosts i would imagine felt some sort of guilt leaving like when you see poverty when you see, and not all these places are poverty stricken but when you see a culture and then you just leave you're like what did i really do I, I i gave a little bit of a lens and then i left but if you're going to battle chefs like you're basically saying at one point, and we, and again, Gordon and National Geographic, we have nothing else to base it off of but your press release and the premise. Like That's all we have. So we're assuming you're going in to fucking fight with other chefs. You're Gordon Ramsay, so you're probably equipped as a chef to put up a pretty decent fight. People will be flabbergasted. It's Gordon Ramsay, the global icon. People from those countries probably want to see you and then will succumb to you, and then that's it. Then you'll leave and you'll leave them behind but where I like your premise Jeff is that you're actually rewarding them like win or lose hopefully you're not competing fuck competing like why are we still doing that so much in terms of food shows like is the only way to show food in competition form like figure that shit out bring the concept here and fund them for a year so they could go feed everyone back home as a result of the success they had here in America That'd be dope. I think Marcus Samuelson is, or fuck, sorry, Marcus. What is your name? I don't know. <coughs> He's a great host for that too. Whatever it is, I like that concept, um, and I think it answers the guilt that a lot of these travel show hosts might have of going to these places and just leaving people behind. Yeah, I felt that hosting a show where we just traveled around the country and we're like people spend their time and give you their most valuable resource in their time and knowledge for. A five-minute travel show that I'm not probably not going to talk to you again just by virtue of how many people we have to talk to as a host so I think the show unless they come out and let us know how it's going to be better it's hard to defend because we don't know any better we know Gordon comes in and yells at people (laughs) That's just what it is. When he fixes a restaurant, he goes in and says how shitty it is. This is broken. This sucks. This is going to make people sick. You can't do this. Here's how to do it better. And then he leaves. He fixes it and he leaves. So he's now going to drop into indigenous cultures and quote, what are you doing when you compete other than fix a problem? What's the conflict? You're going to learn. That's why he's getting those Anthony Bourdain comparisons because I think there's a show where he could go places and learn. But it's not a Gordon Ramsay thing to do to sit and synthesize and learn from people. Or
1: um, if, if it was a Gordon Ramsay show and he wanted to show us that side of Gordon Ramsay. I would watch that. Which I'm still shouldn't be Gordon Ramsay. But if, <laughs> if it is Gordon Ramsay, don't put the competition in it. Just let him sit next to a Thai chef and cook with that chef. That's amazing. And then you guys collaborate on something else. That's not Thai cuisine. That's just Thai chef and Gordon Ramsey doing some crazy shit. Yo, I'm in. But as soon as you're like mono, mono like as soon as you're one versus one, whose dish is better? Who's the judge of that? You can, there's no judge in the world that can say this is better than that, like mm-hmm. on that level.
2: And right? They're going to try to find an indigenous judge. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to try and what's that judge supposed to say? Like, like bash my culture yeah. or choose the homer? Yeah, like, what are that, you do? those are your
1: options? Yeah.
2: And but here's the thing is on the so- other side of the coin, I think other countries want to see Gordon. Like I think that's why Nat Geo that part of the equation is fine. Because you're going to go through funding and finding a chef that's not Gordon like in all these other countries they'll see Gordon Ramsay and, like they're so excited to see them like there's a celebrity culture of our top tier chefs that they want to see so like there's that value add to that culture of like it's Gordon Ramsay like he has 100 restaurants in cal in in the world around the world and like i go to vegas to see a spot like there's a value add to just being around Gordon Ramsay that we might take for granted but other cultures want to see that person. They don't they may not necessarily want to see different people of color from other people. Like, you know what I mean? Like I don't know who the other chef or host would be, but I can see the value prop there. It might only be annoying to us. It really might only be annoying to us that have the luxury of being annoyed by fucking Gordon Ramsay's new show concept. But if I told this concept to someone in a village in Lebanon, I'd be like, "Gordon Ramsay's coming here?" <laughs> right here? Okay. Hey, whatever, uh, fuck on homies. <laughs> like they don't care. They don't care. So that cancel culture already of the show that's not even fucking out, like we're echoing what we talked about in the beginning of this podcast. Are we too upset? Like, let uh, this do battle. Let, like, if, if that's the premise that we understand, <laughs> like, they there's competition cooking shows in other countries. So, like, that's also a format they understand. They also, they, they, like, yes, in an ideal world, is Gordon Ramsay going and, and filling in Bourdain's shoes? Like, is that cool? Yes, like, that adds more value. But, like, again, just because uh, other countries have other, like, they also have the same entertainment sensibilities as us. They want to see people duke it out. Yeah, fuck yeah. Hey, Ahmad from fucking the top of the village. Beat this dude in hummus, bro. Let's go. It's Gordon Ramsay. Imagine if we won. Win or lose, Gordon Ramsay came to our village. Like, there's a weird value that we are missing in, like, all the vulture articles, all the stupid articles where we just, like, early knock on the show that we haven't seen yet. That's only offensive to us right now. That's how I feel right now. I got to see the show. The show might be fire. The show might be no. not competition. They said competition, so they're ruining it for us. As like <laughs> white like, media loses
0: every episode.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but like he might lose every episode. Like there's like a certain amount of Bobby Flay episodes where he loses his throwdown because it's like, come on, if you want everyone, why would you tune in? But I-, I just think we have to take that with a grain of salt. That like other countries just want to see Gordon. They they don't give a shit what the format is, but you Gordon is in our country. He could probably like curb-stomp falafels for all we care, and we probably still watch it and enjoy it because it's Gordon Ramsay saying the word falafel. Like I think we have to take that and understand that and have a little fun with it too. That it might not be that serious. So I don't know. That's where. I
1: I've, and I just think it is serious because when was the last time you saw a show about indigenous cultures? Yeah.
2: There are shows about indigenous cultures. I mean, that's what, like, they're going to other, like, and again, I think they're examples of good stuff. Like, I think David Chang does a good job of going to different things, and it's not competition-based. He's just going and learning and having fun. Gordon's brand is competition. At least in media, it's competition. That's all it is. Whether you're competing to help a restaurant be a better version of itself. So I'm not... Saying that it's going to be a great show because I have nothing to base it off of other than it's
1: probably gonna be a little irky to watch I'm just saying like we're in the golden era of media mm-hmm. like you're gonna have to you're gonna have to swing better than that for me like I'm not if I wasn't in food media that I have to kind of watch this show to pay attention to what's going on, the consumer Jeff. Dude, you just flew right by me with that premise. Like, no thanks. Here's the thing. We have travel-based
2: shows. Vice has tons of shows. Like, we're going to these countries already. We're not watching them. They're out there. Eddie, Eddie Wong, Action Bronson. They've hit all these countries.
1: They've hit countries, for sure. And, I think and they've talked with and, the chefs. And, and they been like, on the ground. I just think there's a difference between like the de- the definition of indigenous culture where at least from what I understand of the show premise is they aren't going into cities, major cities of these countries, or even the second or third major cities of these countries, but they're really trying to get to a root of a culture and that root of that culture to showcase the food of that culture. Again, if it's, if it's Thailand and pad Thai, like, that kind of sucks for me. Sure. Like that's not what I'm looking for. Yeah. I don't know I don't know what the premise is, mm-hmm. but if it is a premise of showcasing mm-hmm. me showcasing to me like an Amazonian culture that I'm not even aware of and you're showcasing that food to me, I if that show exists, maybe I just need to download PBS and like figure it out. But I just don't know of a show like that. I know that there are travel shows that go to different countries and show the food. Not not that one that's been presented to me as indigenous culture. So the first one that I'm getting a press release and hearing about is like a Gordon Ramsay competition show. I'm just like, that's not... The show I want to watch. Right. But in
2: indigenous culture, I think you have to use the word indigenous when you're talking about Gordon Ramsay. But we don't use that word when we talk about like the other food travel shows that exist already. We're just using it because, again, they exist and I can only name two, but I'm very positive there are more than that. But we're talking about it because it's Gordon Ramsay. So we get to see these other cultures because of Gordon Ramsay. So Mm. that name cachet is already working. It's already working. But the people that I know in other countries don't give a fuck about Vice. I love Vice. But they don't give a shit that's not sexy to them. Oh, we got featured on Vice. What's Vice? They don't care. But if you're on National Geographic and Gordon Ramsay's coming to your show, like that is the lens that they want. That's the accolade. They don't care that they were featured on Food Beast. National Geographic, they care. Gordon Ramsay, they care. I bet you your parents, yep. know is, parents know who Gordon Ramsay is. Absolutely, my parents know who Gordon Ramsay. They don't know who Eddie Wong is. Action Bronson. They don't, and those are just the ones in my immediate grasp. But they don't watch PBS. They don't. They don't know. They know Gordon Ramsay, and he has an opportunity to not fuck this up. He can fuck mm-hmm. it up. And again, I have no stake. He could fuck it up, and we're just gonna talk about this next week when he <laughs> fucked it up, and we're gonna laugh about this. But like. He has an opportunity to go to these other cultures and we might learn the way that Anthony Bourdain became a household name and went to those other cultures and my parents got to learn about new cultures because they accepted Bourdain as someone, as a voice that they trusted. So for lack of better terms, that was an okay thing. That was an okay person to be able to give us that view of other cultures. I don't think that should be the end all. I think if you like what you saw, on an episode of Thailand that you learned that there's more than just pad Thai. Now maybe I hope you do some Google searches. I hope I do some Google searches and find out that PBS has a fire documentary about real northern Thai food. But right now, the voices aren't loud enough. Gordon is just that person coming up to the plate right now to be able to tell that story for this, for a new wave of people. Is that the best do I think that's, like,
1: going to be our favorite? No. But he's who we have. He's yeah, well, that loudest. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I think where I hear your point is the fact that just the, the name Gordon will make the world talk about it, which makes the world talk about the episodes and the cultures of the show. That's sad to me. Yeah. That's sad. Like, the state of media that, like, that we have to pay Gordon Ramsay to to showcase a culture, right, to get our attention. But I hear I'm not you. Pr- I'm not proud of the what we've
2: done as media, not us, but just media in general, and that this is what we have coming out the other end. That like the most iconic voice in food for us, for a world travel lens, is Gordon Ramsay. I a, a Scotch dude that. Made his bones in England Like that's Mm -hmm. That's who who we have I'm not proud of it That just is what it is Now Are there little things We could do along the way Find these other chefs Of other cultures And and build them up Yeah That shit takes time Gordon Didn't become Gordon overnight So Mm -hmm. We now need To have these conversations That we're having right now And find out What other people are out there What other chefs are out there How do we put them on How do we support And give that love So that in another 10 years, the voice of food is someone way, way different that we're proud to have out there. So my accolade of Gordon Ramsay isn't a proudness of Gordon Ramsay. It's just that that's who we have right now. And he's better than not. Sure. So, I'm, I mean, I'm rooting for him. <laughs> I mean, I would rather see a good show yeah, than a bad show. Absolutely. So. yeah. Anyways, what a great conversation jed jed yes you're the man dog ah uh, thank you guys where coming. Coming in brother. where can people follow you if they don't already
0: um you can follow me on instagram at daily food feed mm-hmm. um that's pretty much it and where you're else? opening
2: the fourth location
0: i'm opening up a fourth location of the loop churros is going to be in orange right by all
2: y'all if y'all are <laughs> traveling if y'all are, if you're listening outside of california when you travel here make a Make a little Yelp destination and come to the Loop. Check it yeah, out. Absolutely. I like the. Do you still have the creme brulee? That well, that one is staying. Oh, oh. I love the creme brulee. <laughs> loop churro it's amazing you guys yeah. like fire it there the yep. sugar gets melted on S- get it in the ice cream get the get the whole whole experience <laughs> you want the whole thing it's delicious yep. hold
1: that cup up to that background get that photo yeah <laughs> every store is photogenic uh, <laughs> but
0: yeah we have three locations currently now it's westminster fullerton and chino hills and can follow us at the loop churros over there too I mean. tons of followers
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> continued success to you man thanks um, for stopping by no thank you, for no, thank you guys so much for having me like I said full circle so it's kind of kind of cool to see yeah appreciate it and all you guys who are listening towards the end that means uh, you don't hate us and we love you for it so please do leave a uh, review on the iTunes store if you've already left one then tell a friend about the show because like you know we're out here dog we love you guys and we love when you guys tag a friend and just tell one person about the show
1: we love that. Um, my name is Eli Jeffrey Kutnick. What's up, man? Jeffrey Kutnick. And last week, we had an amazing episode mm-hmm. with, uh, with the finalists from uh, Final Table. So if you've watched that show, it's a must listen. So mm-hmm. make sure to listen, and we'll catch you next week. Bye, guys. <laughs>